If you have your Bibles, please open them up to Mark chapter 9. If you are new to the Bible or if it's been a long time since you have been to church or looked at a Bible, it may be a helpful reminder for you that those large numbers are the chapter numbers, those small numbers are the verse numbers, and we're just going to look at those same verses that were read this morning. We will be using this more like a a launch pad this morning rather than settling into this text like we usually do. And there's good reason for that, for as we approach the topic, that idea of Christ alone, it is writ large on so many pages of not just the New Testament, but it builds in the Old Testament pointing to Christ. But it is just so many places and so many areas we want to take a closer look at some other passages. And, and so if you are comfortable going through the Bible or sifting through various page, pages and passages, I'd encourage you to do so. If you find yourself struggling from one passage to find another, that's okay. Just stick here in Mark chapter 9. We will return to it later on. Would you join me before we enter into studying God's word? Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, this is your word. We do not approach it casually. Well, God, we want to hear from you this morning. We want to see you more clearly this morning. Well aware that in hearing from you and in seeing you more clearly, we will ourselves be challenged. We will ourselves be humbled. And yet, if we will put our faith where you point us to in your son, we will find gladness, we will find joy, we will find assurance and a rock upon which we can stand. Remind us of these truths this morning of God. Remind us and anchor us deeply in the truth of we, of Christ and Christ alone as our sufficient and only savior. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Have you ever noticed how easily it is that we claim to do things or contribute to something to which we give almost no help? Let me give you a couple of examples. Perhaps you have needed to get your car fixed. Now, I know some of you are quite capable at fixing and handling almost any issue with your vehicles, but some of us, um, some of us are the reason that mechanics and some of you have jobs. And so uh, if a car, if our car is needing repairs, we, we take it to one of you. We, some of you will take it to a mechanic and they will work on it for you. But when you are reporting to a friend, perhaps a coworker or a friend here at church that, that, that weekend and you're telling them what you did this week, you will say often something like, we had to repair our car. Perhaps it was the brakes. Yeah, I had to get the, I had to get the brakes done. I had to fix the brakes this week. Even though you yourself didn't get on the ground once, you didn't, you didn't pull a tire off, you didn't do any work whatsoever, you, you will often say, yes, I, I did this. I got my brakes done. I, I worked on my brakes this week. Or perhaps it's work around the house. You do have a, 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 re, a remodel done. You have a roof repaired. And we will often say, we did this this week. 
We worked on our roof. I, I did this in our kitchen. I, 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 ha- I, I worked this out when we really ourselves never lifted a hammer. Perhaps, parents, it's with science projects at home with your kids. And um, really the only contribution that they gave was sitting next to you when you forced them to sit down to get the project done because they didn't tell you it was due until the next day. And so you're, 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 you will sit with me and you will do this as you do it almost for them. And then they begrudgingly put their name down on it. And that's their science project. You know, I worked on this. This is my science project, which is really, and you're thinking, your science project? Perhaps you have taken a trip as a family. And I don't know who is the the designated long-distance driver in your house. Maybe in your home you share the load. Maybe one of you is the the long-distance driver, Whatever it is, maybe, maybe one of you you, you, you get behind the wheel, everyone loads into the car, you start driving four or five hours, everyone falls asleep in the car except you, and yet, even the kids in the back seat, we drove this far. They didn't do anything, right? If they weren't sleeping, they were making noise. They just got in the vehicle, and yet we... we we did this together. I contributed this. We, we find ways to, to kind of smuggle in our own contribution into things. Now, most of these are, are harmless ways of talking. They're harmless uses, figures of speech. It's meaningless. But when we approach Christ, when we approach the Lord, Talking, the way we talk, the very words we use, giving the impression that we contribute anything isn't harmless. It it can be dangerous. We begin to sneak some partial credit into the work that Christ himself did for us. This becomes disastrous and dangerous for us because salvation, that is forgiveness of our sins and and cleansing and the grace and mercy of God, these aren't a result of some kind of partnership with us that that we have with with Christ, that we have with God. He does his part, we, we do our part. The rescue of men and women who have sinned against God. This isn't a joint venture that we enter into. There is no we, there is only he when it comes to salvation. Redemption and salvation is the work of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that is something that we must always safeguard. This is why Paul, in his second letter to Timothy... That is his, his last letter, Paul's last letter that he writes for us in the New Testament. And he is fairly certain, you can see it in his writing, he is urgently pleading with Timothy. He is aware that, that the potential for his death is right around the corner. And so he is urgently writing to Timothy some last instructions for him. And what he commands him, what he urges him to give 
What he urges him to do is to guard the good deposit, to guard the gospel. The gospel must be safeguarded because people, even those who call themselves Christians, even ourselves, we continually, without sometimes realizing it, we continually try to make the the work of Jesus a partnership that we take up with him, a joint venture that we are joining in with him. And this is what moved the reformers in the 16th century to begin pulling away from the Roman Catholic Church in the subtle but centuries-long shift that took place in Roman Catholic teaching by the Reformers' Day, began to be clearly seen that people were no longer trusting in Christ alone, but they were trusting in Christ plus something else. There is a, and was, especially in the Reformers' time, there was an understanding of two kinds of faith that was possible for people to have. One was explicit faith. That is, they could themselves trust in God and in his promises through Christ Jesus. But because that was so convoluted or, or so difficult, the Roman Catholic Church didn't believe that that was really possible for most people. So rather than having an explicit faith in Christ or in God's promises and in his word, the Roman Catholic taught what was called an implicit faith. That is, you, instead of trusting God and trusting his promises and trusting his word and trusting in Christ, you could trust us. Trust the Roman Catholic Church. Trust what they said about God, what they said about Christ, what they said about his promises. It was a subtle shift away from explicit faith in Christ to let, just trust us what we tell you about Christ. It was a subtle redirect. And because the Roman Catholic Church believed that they and still does, that they are the physical manifestation on earth of Christ's incarnation. That is, they could be trusted just as you trusted Christ. Just as Christ was present with his disciples, so they teach that the Roman Catholic Church is present with us. This faith in the Roman Catholic Church extended to the papacy, where the Pope is believed, is taught to be the very successor of Peter himself, carrying on his leadership, his authority. He is the vicar, the representative of Christ on earth. And if that is true, then how can we not trust him? And what about Mary, to whom prayers are offered, who is revered, where it is offered, they they plead, Mary, pray for us. Because Mary and the saints become mediators because who could dare approach Christ? Who could dare approach God? So we need a mediator even before Christ. We need saints. We need Mary. We trust in them. And it wasn't just this that frustrated the reformers. It was how the Roman Catholic Church taught through the practice that salvation is a joint venture. They taught this through the practice of the sacraments. There are seven sacraments, baptism and confirmation, marriage, last rites, holy orders, the mass, and confession and penance. 
I just want to touch on a few of those that are absolutely critical to that undermine this, the object of saving faith. The first is in baptism. That is unlike us, where baptism becomes, where what we see in the scriptures, what is evidently or explicitly taught in scriptures, that baptism is a picture of what Christ has done as we lay the person under the water and bring them out, it becomes a picture of their faith in Christ to rescue them from death to life. It becomes a commitment of that individual to Christ. And it is a commitment because it is done in a church. It becomes a commitment of that church to that individual and that individual to this church. But they taught something else. They taught that, they taught that and, and do teach that through baptism, One's original sin, that is our original guilt that we are all born with because we are born as sinners. Baptism through the Roman Catholic Church is believed to actually wash away that original guilt so that potentially if you were to pass away immediately after having been baptized, you could potentially go right to heaven, skip purgatory altogether. But since that does not happen, for the, by and large, for most people, what is needed is the second sacrament, that is the Eucharist or the Mass. The altar for the Mass stands at the greatest place of prominence in the Roman Catholic Church buildings. And it teaches that whenever a priest finishes with the liturgy of the Mass, that that bread and that cup, is transformed into the body and blood of Christ. Though the visible appearance of those elements stays the same, yet in some mystical way, Christ's blood and his body are present there. This is why for, by the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church no longer allowed the cup to be drunk by anyone outside of the priest, outside of those who were up front. It wasn't allowed to be shared with those in the congregation, lest a drop of that wine be spilt on the floor and the blood of Christ be wasted. One of the most important things to know about the Mass is that the Roman Catholic Church teaches that this sacrament gives grace to everyone present, whether you believe in Christ or not. That is simply being there in the room and partaking of it. Whether you believe in God, whether you believe in Christ, whether you're doing it just because you've been forced, whether you've lived well or not, it doesn't even depend not only on you, it doesn't even depend well on, it doesn't even depend on the priest who is offering it up. It is sufficient in and of itself to be a channel of God's saving grace to whoever is present. In fact, at the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church declared that those who teach that the sacraments do not confer grace themselves, but faith being required to receive the grace of the Lord, they declared that those people ought to be condemned. The last sacrament that I wanted to just point us to this morning is that of penance. The very idea, the very word penance is a, is a mistranslation of the Latin Vulgate of the Greek New Testament. This is what was corrected in those 
early editions of the Greek New Testament as they were published and by Erasmus when he changed it from do penance to seeing that it was actually repent. Repent being something, a change of mind and a change of heart that results in a change of life. Doing penance was merely now an obligation upon us to do certain acts. And those acts would require first a contrite, a humble spirit, and then going to confession, confessing our sins to the priest. He would absolve us of our sins and give us things then to do. These would, no, these would be any number of things, fasting, giving of alms, prayer, pilgrimages. And one can have their debt of sin satisfied and pay off some of the temporal punishment in purgatory if they would simply do these things. The reformers saw all this and they realized rather than leading people to Christ, This was smoke and mirrors leading people away from Christ. People were encouraged not to put their hope in Christ and in Christ alone, but in Christ plus the church. Not in Christ, but in popes and in bishops and in priests. Not in Christ alone, but in in Mary and the saints. Not in Christ alone, but in Christ plus their own, our own contributions, our own effort. Brother and sister, one of the things we have to realize is that this danger, it, it, is not, it is not something merely that threatens the Roman Catholic Church, but rather it threatens us every day as well. That we ourselves can shift from trusting and putting our faith in Christ alone to Christ plus something else. Perhaps it is a church leader. Perhaps it is a television preacher or a radio preacher or a particular author. Rather than having Christ, confidence in Christ alone to build his church, we, we trust in other things. We look for other things. Confidence in our events, in our programming. Getting the right feel for the service. Many Christians today have substituted their, religi- their confidence in a religious system or even religious practices with confidence in an individual and subjective experience. It is rather than trusting in, in, in now doing something now, we're trusting in, in merely what we feel. So it is not Christ alone that we trust in, but rather our subjective experience and feelings about Christ. Our feelings of closeness with God. What makes this also tragic is just when the world needs most to hear and to see the message and the faith of God's people publicly displayed that we are trusting and anchoring our confidence in Christ and in him alone. We so easily give them so many other pictures of where our joy, our gladness, of where our hope lies. What we need as a church, what we need, every generation needs, is a reminder that our hope must be in Christ and in Christ alone. We see this in Mark chapter 9. Here Christ is 
ascending the, this mount. We are just told it is uh, often called the Mount of Transfiguration. That is, it is the place where Christ was transfigured before a few of his disciples. He gathers his disciples. He leaves some of them at the mountain. He ascends the mountain with a, just a few of them. They get to the top. And while they are there, we read before that Christ's clothes in verse 3, his clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them or bleach them. Matthew 17 Verse 2, describing this same event, tells us that Christ shone like the sun. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. And Christ here is, is revealed in all of his divine glory. And part of the reason we trust in Christ is because he is of supreme worth and glory more than anyone or anything in this world. That there is nothing like him. There is no one that can match him. There is nothing you can chase after in life that will be more dazzling and more glorious than him. His clothes became white like snow, like light itself. Christ's face shines like the sun. And we are told in verse 4 that Elijah appeared with them and with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. You see, there's, there's confusion here. Peter thinks, hey, look, this isn't this amazing. We have some of the best prophets here. And God's response isn't, yes, isn't my son so great? He's as great as Elijah and Moses. Oh no, it is, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And when they look up, there is no one else. There is no one who matches the glory of Christ. Christ shines with the very glory of God. And when Moses went on the mount to meet with God, or he, when he went into the tent of meeting in the Old Testament to meet with God, when he would come out, we are told that his face often glowed. And it became apparent to the people of Israel that he had been with God and they could see his face glowing with the glory of having been with God. But his glory was different than what we see here. Not just in degree or brilliance, Moses' glory, the, 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 the shining of his face is like the, the reflected glory of the moon. The moon doesn't have any light that it gives itself. It only reflects the light of the sun. But Christ is the very blazing glory of God himself. Shining out, radiant in its glory. This is what we read in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Or in Colossians chapter 1, 15, 
where Paul says this, he, this is Christ, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, that is, he is the supreme one, the preeminent one over all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything, he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things. John, the apostle John He wants us to see this and as he writes in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. That is God's own fellow, equal with God, distinct from the Father. But not only is the word Christ with God, he is also God himself. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. This is what Jesus would declare so boldly so brazenly in John 10, 30, when he says, I and my Father are one. I want you to understand that. That's a bold statement. I and my Father in one. It, which is why he would say in verse, chapter 14, verse 9, that if you have seen the Father, I'm sorry, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That is an audacious claim. And it gives Credence to what C.S. Lewis said. You cannot merely hold that Jesus is a good teacher. He is either a lunatic to make such fantastic claims. Or he's lying. Or he is the Lord. He cannot just be a good teacher. Here is one who is God, who is claimed to be God. And he did the works of God while on earth. But more than that, he is also truly man. He is truly one of us. Philippians 2, 7-8 tells us that Christ emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The reason that the Mount of Transfiguration was needed was so that his disciples would see Christ in all of his divine glory. Here was not just another man, even just another great teacher. Here was one who was glorious, and yet this one who was fully and truly divine, he is truly God. He is truly man. This is what Paul would write in Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of women, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption of sons. Or 1 Timothy 2, 5, that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is both God and man. And because he is 
Because he is God, he is able to intercede for us. He is able to stand before God. He is able to pay for our sins. You know, you and I, we we might die for someone, but our death would not act as a substitute for them. Our life could not be an equal substitute for them. But Christ, because is the infinite, eternal God. His sacrifice is of infinite and eternal worth because his person is of infinite and eternal glory. And because Christ is God and because he is man, he is able to represent us before the Father. He is able to stand in our place to take on our punishment. And he is at this moment pleading for you before God. And it is because of Christ who is in himself that he is able to take up the role of mediator between God and man. He alone is worthy of our confidence because he is that perfect prophet. The Old Testament prophet's job was really simple. He was merely to deliver God's word to God's people. To give God's word to God's people. To reveal God's will and God's word to God's people. And Christ is that perfect prophet. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses tells, Moses being the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, he sharing that title, that esteem with Elijah. Moses tells of another prophet coming who one day will surpass all other prophets. And Christ is that prophet. And this is what we see in Mark chapter 9, verse 7, when the apostles, when, when, when Peter is responding, this is wonderful. Look, we've got Christ, you are now on equal platform with Elijah and Moses. I mean, what else is there to do? How, who could be greater than these two men? And God's word, listen to him, this is my son, tells us that there is no one like this prophet. Because Christ doesn't just give God's word. He is not just a channel through which God's word comes. He is himself the word of God. He is the very self-expression of God. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Christ will tell those before him, you have heard it said, referring to what is written in the Old Testament. And then he will go on to say, but I tell you. You see, the Old Testament prophets, their authority resided only in the text, but Christ's authority came up and out of himself, his own worth, his own glory. He didn't speak on the authority of someone else. He never once had to say, thus saith the Lord. He could simply say, I tell you. This is no implicit faith. You do not need to trust what someone else is saying about Jesus. No, we can simply trust what Jesus is declaring. He is that perfect word. He is that final word. Hebrews chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2. 
We are told long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Here is no ordinary prophet. Here is the final prophet. Here is the great prophet. Here is the final one through whom we know God. More than just prophet, he is also priest. He is the one through whom we now come to the Father. Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16 tells us this. Since then we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. But one who is in every respect, who was in every respect, tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near to the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Christ is that sinless priest. Which is why we will read of other prophets in chapter 9 of verses 11 to 15 of Hebrews, where the human priests, rather, they, when they offered up a sacrifice, their, their job as a priest was, was never over because the, the, the sin of God's people was, was never finished. And they themselves were sinners who needed to make an offering for their own sin. But Christ, we are told, offers a sacrifice that is once for all time. Listen to Hebrews 9, 11 to 15. He, this is Christ, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, if this could sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living God? And John the Baptist would say it much more simply. When he would catch sight of Christ, he would simply point to him and cry out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because Christ is the infinite and eternal Son of God, He has given Himself for us the riches of God's grace that He has purchased are both infinite and eternal. His work transcends all the work of other priests because He Himself transcends all other priests. There is no priest like him. There is no intercessor like him. There is no religious leader like him. You and I, we dare not go to any other. We dare not trust even in ourselves. It is Christ and in Christ alone. And Christ is not just our prophet, our perfect priest. He is that ultimate and sovereign king. 
In the days of the Old Testament, the kings were those who mediated the rule and the reign of God. They were, through their just rule of God's people, they were to help God's people shine as lights in the world so that the rest of the world would see the, the, the justice and the righteousness in Israel and therefore trust in Israel's God. But David, the great king, the king par excellence of the Old Testament, he himself falls and he himself fails. And so does every king before and after him. But Christ never failed. He does not fail and he will not fail. He tells us before he ascends, all authority is given to him. And he now rules and reigns. And there will come a day when he will rule and reign on earth. Christ is that ultimate king. And as the ultimate king, he won victory for God's people. How does he win that victory? It's, it's not through normal ways of, of, of defeating one's enemies. It's not through bloodying and brutalizing the other guy. You know, if, if you watch football and enjoy football, the, the, the game, they, are, they often say, the game of football is often won at the line of scrimmage. Whoever has the biggest, the toughest, the ugliest, whatever, the, the strongest guys up front to push away the other guys, that team has the best chance of winning. Christ doesn't win that way. He doesn't win by beating the other side down. Christ wins for us by being beaten for us. Paul writes this in Colossians chapter 2. And you, who were once dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did he do this? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him that is at the cross. At the cross, Christ triumphs over sin and Satan and death. Enemies that no earthly king or leader or army or technology or method or app could ever help us overcome. Christ has won final and full victory. And because of this, Christ alone, and Christ alone is worthy of all our faith and confidence. And he alone is capable of rewarding your confidence this morning. He alone is worthy and capable of rewarding your faith in him this week. No matter what you are going through, no matter the questions you are facing, Christ and Christ alone is worthy and able to rescue, to redeem to overcome. Because he is the great high priest, he is our great prophet who reveals God. He is our great king. He is 
the great God-man. He is our Savior. This is why you see statements like Acts 4.12, where Peter preaching will say this, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given among men whereby you can be saved. Or Christ himself who declares in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I realize that that is That's not just an unpopular idea today. That's an offensive idea. I mean, Christ, isn't that arrogant of him? And isn't that arrogant of us to believe that Christ is not just a way or maybe even the good way or the best way? No, we believe that he is the exclusive way, the only way, the only truth, the only life. Your truth, my truth, it doesn't matter. Christ is that truth. There is no life that you will find in this world that will match the life that is Christ. He is the only way to life because he is life itself. And if we are to experience life, if we are to experience all the blessings of God that he intends for us to experience... It will only be in Christ and in Christ alone. This is why Paul writes in Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Nothing left out. So that whatever you are facing in your life right now, it is designed by God for you. It is, a part of the, it is a part of God's aim in your life to, for you to experience these spiritual blessings in Christ, through Christ, because of Christ. Meditating on that truth. One of the great reformers, John Calvin, says this, if we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus. Jesus' name means God saves says, if we seek salvation, we are taught by the name of Christ that it is of him. If we seek any other gifts by the Spirit, they will be found in Christ's anointing. If we seek strength, it lies, it lies in Christ's rule, his dominion. If in purity, if purity in Christ's conception, if we seek gentleness, it appears in Christ's birth. For by his birth, he was made like us in every respect so that he might learn to feel our pain. If we seek redemption, it lies in Christ's passion, that is his suffering and death. If we seek acquittal, it lies in Christ's condemnation. If remission of the curse in Christ's cross, if satisfaction in his sacrifice, if purification in his blood, if reconciliation in his descent into the grave, if mortification of the flesh, it is found in the tomb if newness of life in his resurrection, if immortality in the same, if inheritance of the kingly kingdom in his entrance into heaven, if protection, if security, if abundant supply of all blessings in his kingdom, if untroubled expectation of judgment is what we seek, we find it in the power given to Christ to judge. In short, since Rich store of every kind of goods abound in Christ. 
Let us drink our fill from this fountain and no other. Brother and sister, we are so tempted to drink our fill from many fountains. To taste that which can never satisfy. It may be through our work. It may be through our relationship. It may be through accomplishing some home project. We may be seeking satisfaction, satis- satisfaction and gladness and joy through family, through people, through a political party, through possessions. But none of this will satisfy. That God has sent his son into the world to save sinners is the most incredible truth. So friends, do not put your confidence before God in church leaders, in television preachers, and radio preachers. Don't put your confidence in churches, in movements, or organizations. Don't put your trust for growth and renewal in being disciplined in some method in your own creativity or trendy packaging that is offered up, trust in Christ, in Christ alone. Don't put yourself, don't put your trust in yourself. Don't put yourself, don't put your trust in yourself for your own well-being in the future, in your own wisdom to figure out where you should go, what you should do, how you should live. Don't put your trust in your own experience, in your own gifts, in your own abilities. Don't put your trust in your family, in whatever experience you may have had. Don't put your confidence in yourself that you may be a spiritual person or a religious person. All of that is meaningless to God. Put your trust in Christ. Brother and sister in Christ, you who have trusted in him for your salvation, watch your life, watch your doctrine. Do not drift from this hope. Daily stoke the fire of hope in Christ and in Christ alone. And regularly turn from sin and cling to Christ. Today is October 17th. 2021, 466 years ago, October 16th, two men, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, were tied to the stake in the northern city of Oxford of England. Both men had lived through multiple rulers there in England. Hugh Latimer was a devoted Roman Catholic until a young man came to him and asked if he could explain to to Latimer, who was a a well-known preacher and defender of Roman Catholicism, if he could explain to him why he believed in uh, Christ and in Christ alone, through grace alone, through in Christ alone. 
Latimer accepted the invitation to talk with this young man. And, and in talking with him, Latimer soon trusted in Christ, seeing it throughout the scripture, seeing that Christ alone is a worthy savior. Latimer, who had lived through the reign of Henry VII and Henry VIII, and now finally under Bloody Mary, he was himself imprisoned for two years. And he, along with Nicholas Ridley, were burned to the stake. Hugh Latimer was himself, at this time he was 70 years old. Nicholas Ridley was in his late 40s. Both men tied to the stake, separate stakes, separate wood piles. They met for the first time on the way, and as the stakes and as the wood was being prepared for them, they bowed and they prayed. They began to encourage one another, even as they were being tied to the stake. And it was Ridley who encouraged Latimer first, assuring them, assuring him that God would either, what he says, as he says it, assuage the fury of the flame or else he would strengthen them to endure it. Those words would soon be proven true as Latimer, he would die very shortly being burned quickly, but Ridley's own flames would take hours for him to expel his life. But it was as the sticks crackled and the heat of the flame expanded that Latimer shouted out, Ridley, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man, for we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. In those moments, Ridley and Latimer learned the value of trusting in Christ and in Christ alone. And their, their, their death, indeed, though it was a short-lived fire, it spread throughout all of England and beyond. And it has lit a torch for us today to live by, to lay our lives down for, to know in whom we can trust. In no one else and in nothing else other than Christ and in Christ alone. Let's pray. Our Savior, you are worthy of all praise. For there is none like you. Open up our hearts today to receive this glorious truth, to see and to savor you above all things. That we, in seeing you and gazing upon you, might be glad in you, might know the Father, might know God, for you are truly God. That we might know that through your finished work, Our work is ended, our salvation fully and finally paid for. So that we need hope and trust in no other. And that you, our Savior, are reigning even now over every aspect of our lives. And we long for the day in which your reign will be made visible and complete. Oh Christ our God, 
grant us eyes to see and hearts that pant after you. That we may know that we can trust in you and in you alone. We pray this in your name, our Savior. Amen.